So how many of you, after seeing these, these videos the last few weeks, feel a little better about your own self? Or maybe that's you and you actually feel worse about yourself now. Are you one of those two categories? Uh, for me, I'm that, that very first one. What's this guy's name again? He knows my name. What's his name? I want to say it's Mike, but I'm only 98% sure it's Mike, and I just that 2% scares me. So I'm just like, hey, man, how you doing? And that's kind of where I leave it. Hey, I'd like to welcome you here this morning. Uh, Jay already welcomed you guys in, but if you're visiting with us, if it's your first time, we are so happy that you're here, and, and I, I say this every week, if you're visiting or if you've been here since day one or you're anywhere in between there, we are so honored that you're here, and we don't just say that to say that. We truly are honored, truly are happy that you have made it a priority to come worship Jesus with us. Uh, we're wrapping up this series, Awkward, today. Uh, over the past few weeks, we've talked about how we can overcome the fear and uneasiness and anxieties or just the plain awkwardness that comes with sharing your faith with others. And, and so we talked about how to be real and how to live your story consistently and, and authentically. And last week, Daniel talked about how to be relevant, how to uh, kind of get a feel for the people you're around so you get to know them a little bit better and know kind of when and how to approach them with the gospel. But those two, two weeks, we've talked about basically how you can live and what you can do. But if we're truly going to live out the Great Commission and make disciples, there comes a time when we have to be ready to say what needs to be said. And that's where it gets a little bit difficult. A lot of you are probably like I am, in that it's not hard for you to talk to others about certain subjects. Now, I can talk to just about anybody about sports. You want to talk about baseball or college football in particular, I'm all for that. I can talk for days on there. We can talk movies, and, and some of you already know this. You can talk to me about Star Wars. We'll talk about Star Wars for days and hours on end. You know, really important things in life. Um, for you, you have your topics. Maybe it's books. Maybe it's movies. Maybe it's where you've traveled and what you've seen. For some of you, maybe it's politics. I'm not one of those, but maybe that's you. You like to talk politics with people. Whatever it is, we have our topics that are easy to talk to. But when it comes to our faith, that's where a lot of us want to back off a little bit. And it's, it's difficult to start talking about our faith with somebody else that doesn't know Jesus, or maybe somebody who uh, is, goes to a different church and, and they worship a different way than you. That gets difficult. And I think there's a variety of reasons why. One, I think we're afraid that we're going to offend somebody. Now, I'm not meaning from a political correctness standpoint, not that. But what we're going to say about Jesus, maybe we think the other person's not really prepared to hear it yet, and they can't quite handle it. And as a result, maybe they're not going to give Jesus a chance now. And because of what we said, we're afraid they're going to turn the other direction and, and, and run away and, and never come back. And now not only have we failed to make a disciple, we've prevented somebody from becoming one. I, I know that's been a fear for me at times. I think another reason is uh, maybe there's a little bit of this insecurity, a little bit of this feeling of inadequacy that, man, I'm just not equipped or prepared to talk to somebody. Or maybe I don't, I don't think I know what I'm talking about, or I don't think I can give an answer that somebody uh, can use. I don't know about you, sometimes for me, I'm, I'm, maybe I'm, I'm teaching a class with people and there's this feeling of inadequacy with me because I know there's somebody in the room a whole lot smarter than I am and I'm thinking, man, how am I going to teach this person something? Uh, before we moved out here, uh, the, the church we went to back home, I taught in our eight-week blocks on Wednesday nights. 
In the very first class that, that, that our, our pastor had me teach, our pastor was one of my, <coughs> excuse me, one of my professors from Bible college. He asked me to teach this class, and, and I'm teaching an apologetics class on the Bible, and there's a guy in the back row who's got a PhD. He's a professor at a local college, and I'm like, how am I going to teach him? He knows so much more about everything than I do. And it's just kind of this feeling of inadequacy. I, I taught a men's group where I replaced our, our old associate pastor. And, and men, I just had this overwhelming sense of inadequacy stepping into that chair. Or maybe when I was coaching, rarely ever did I feel like I could outwit the coach on the other sideline. I thought, man, either he or she, whoever's over there, they have forgotten more soccer than I'll ever know. And so there's no way I can just match wits with this person or no way I can outgame plan this other person. And it's just this overwhelming feeling of, of I'm not good enough to do this. Uh, at times, I really felt like I needed to go talk to, to Stuart Smalley. How many of you remember who Stuart Smalley was? Anybody ever watched Saturday Night Live in the early 90s? He was this character on SNL, and he was this self-proclaimed self-help guru, but he was terrible at it. And every week, he would host this show on this local cable access channel, and his whole purpose was to encourage everybody, but he was totally down in the dumps and didn't know what he was talking about. And it was, it was funny because he was oblivious. And so he would always have this special guest on his show, and it was normally whoever was hosting uh, SNL that night. So it was a famous celebrity, famous actor or actress or, or singer or, or athlete. And he was oblivious. He didn't have a clue who they were, but he was trying to encourage them. And I remember one of them, he has Michael Jordan on there. And this is like one of the most confident, most, most cocky people in the world. And he's trying to build up his self-esteem. And, and, and Stuart Smalley, he always ended every episode by making them repeat after him where he'd say, I'm good enough, I'm smart enough, and doggone it, people like me. And I thought, you know, sometimes as cheesy and corny as that sounds, when it comes to sharing our faith, we need that reminder. We're good enough, we're smart enough, doggone it, people like us. And yeah, it's silly. It's silly to repeat it. That's kind of a cheesy show. But that's a simple reminder that when it comes to sharing our faith with others, we don't need to overcomplicate it. We don't need to make it some elaborate process that has 25 steps and we have to follow them in a specific order. And if we miss one, it throws the whole thing off. That's not what it is. When it comes to sharing our faith, there's not a a one-size-fits-all copy. In fact, I don't have a, a ton of books on evangelism. I've got about maybe half a dozen up in my office, but every one of them has a different strategy. And you go downtown to the, the bookstore, and you, you're going to find a, a selection of books on, on evangelism or discipleship, and they all have a different approach, a different strategy. doesn't mean that they all will work or won't work, but there's just so many ways to go about it. But I think, again, we overcomplicate it. And I think it can be much simpler and easier than we realize we just have to keep a couple of things in mind. First, when you're going to share your faith with others, you should anticipate some difficulties. You should anticipate some obstacles. I mean, even Jesus told us as much. If you've got your Bibles, look at Matthew 13. Jesus, in this parable, talks about it. It's called the parable of the sower. And, and Jesus says this in Matthew 13, starting in verse 3. He says, A farmer went out to sow his seed. And as he was scattering the seed, some fell along the path, and the birds came and ate it up. Some fell on rocky places where it did not have much soil. It sprang up quickly because the soil was shallow, but when the sun came up, the plants were scorched, and they withered because they had no root. Other seed fell among the thorns, which grew up and choked the plants. 
Still other seed fell on good soil where it produced a good crop, a hundred, sixty, or thirty times what was sown. And then a few verses later, Jesus explains this to the people around him. So starting in verse 19, he says, When anyone hears the message about the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away what was sown in his heart. This is the seed that was sown along the path. The seed falling on rocky ground refers to someone who hears the word and at once receives it with joy. But since they have no root, they only last a short time. When trouble or persecution comes because of the word, they quickly fall away. The seed falling among the thorns refers to someone who hears the word, but the worries of life and deceitfulness of wealth choke the word, making it unfruitful. But the seed falling on good soil refers to someone who hears the word and understands it. This is the one that produces a crop yielding 160 or 30 times what was sown. I'm from Oklahoma. I've lived almost my entire life in Oklahoma. Despite that, I've never been a farmer or a rancher. There's this misconception that we're all farmers and ranchers. That's not the case. I'm not one. But I have a good friend who's a rancher. One of my, one of my very good friends in life is a cattle rancher. And I asked him, I said, Jesus is basically telling us here, you get a 25% success, or it's 25% chance of success. I said, you're a rancher, and you've got friends that are farmers that have uh, thousands of acres of crops. What would it look like for you if there was a 25% success rate? If 25% of the, of the cattle that you were, you were raising that year turned out, what would it look like? Or, or if, if, if your friend who has thousands of acres of corn or beans or, or, or wheat, what would it look like for them if only 25% looked, uh, turned out? What would the impact be on you, on your family, and on the industry? About one second he thought, and he goes, it would be devastating. He said, if all that time, all that work, all that money that we put into this, it would be devastating. He said it would almost end it. And, and I love that he thought about it for a minute. He goes, it would be the most discouraging thing I could ever think of. And I thought, man, how discouraging would it be in, in my life? Go back to my days of teaching. If 25% of my students passed, 25% of my students graduated, or, or coaching and I only won 25% of my games, how would that look like? Man, that would be discouraging. In fact, there's one profession I can think of where 25% is considered good, that's baseball. Huh. You look across Major League Baseball the last 20 years, the league batting average for the entire league is about 25%. I'm not a baseball player. I don't think most of us in this room are either, so let's just forget about that. If what you did in your life, you succeeded 25% of the time, man, it's discouraging. And that's what Jesus is telling us here, is that's where we're at. Now, he's not saying 25% of the time when you reach other people, you'll be successful. He's saying 25% of the people you come across are going to be ready to hear the word. What he's saying in this parable, basically, there's four types of people. First, there's ones whose hearts are hard. These are the people who have no use for God in their lives whatsoever. Either they believe in God and they just don't care. You know, that's a lot, of our, a lot of our friends, a lot of our family. They believe God, but they have no place for him in their life. Or maybe they just choose not to believe whatsoever. Basically, their hearts are hardened. They don't need God at all. That's the seed that's thrown on, on, on the path. Kind of like if you're throwing seed in a garden and you throw some out on the road instead. That's basically what's happening. It's not going anywhere. Nothing's happening to that seed. The second part or, or the second type are those whose hearts are shallow. 
In other words, the seed plants, but it never really takes up root, and so they can be uh, withered away or uprooted very easily. We see that with people here. They come, and maybe they even get baptized, and they're on fire for God, but it doesn't take much for them to get pulled back away into a previous life. And then sometimes we'll, we'll say, man, they're all they're like a roller coaster. They're up and down. They're all over the place. That's kind of where they would fit. And, and I don't know what the solution is to that, but that's what Jesus is talking about. The third type he talks about are those who grew up a, among the thorns. We, we would say that their hearts are crowded. Now this is where it gets a little touchy because this may be somebody in this room. This may be some of us here. And I don't think that we're intentionally trying to do this, but basically what he's saying is there is so much going on in your life that it's hard to find room for me sometimes. And what we do is, is we try to slide Jesus in somewhere. And the things that we have crowding our lives, they may not be bad things. Maybe our family, maybe our, our job, and maybe a job you love that you're good at that, that helps other people. Uh, maybe just, just all the busyness of life. And what happens is you say, man, where can I prioritize Jesus here? There's a problem with that. You should never prioritize Jesus in your life. You should set Jesus at the top and then prioritize your life underneath him. But that's what happens when our hearts are crowded. We don't make room for Jesus. Or if we do, it's a very small part, and he's not above all of it. And then finally, he says, there's those whose hearts are receptive. We might say they're fertile. They're ready to be planted. And those are the ones that grow a crop. Those are the ones that produce, uh, what he says, a, a, a yield of 100 or 60 or 30 times what was sown. Again, I've never been a farmer I went to help somebody one time. I had no clue what I was doing. I was more help when I left than when I was there. The closest I've ever been to a farmer was I, I had a garden in my yard. Maybe some of you have grown uh, vegetables in your yard, or, or maybe you do uh, flowers and, and shrubs and, and, and landscape-type stuff. But for me, when I planted my garden, I was a little bit more meticulous. I wanted to make sure I was doing this the right way, so I really studied how to do this and, and when to plant things and, and how deep to plant the seed and how far apart. I mean, wanted to get down to the detail because I wanted to be successful. And so I did this, and overall I had a pretty good return. Now, not every single plant worked. Some didn't grow at all. Some grew, but they didn't produce any fruit. But because I waited until my soil was right and ready, and I, I watered it the way I'm supposed to, and, and I, I paid attention to it, and I kept up with it every night, I had a pretty good return. And that's what Jesus is saying about that last group. That's the group that, that they're ready to hear about. Does that mean we should ignore everybody else? Absolutely not. But don't get discouraged when certain groups aren't receptive and don't produce a yield. Because he's saying not everyone will. See, I think when it comes to reaching others, and Daniel talked about this a little bit last week with, with being relevant, we can live our story. We can be consistent with it, but at some point, you've got to stop and listen to somebody else's story. You've got to hear where they're coming from and see where they're coming from. But there's a danger and a temptation when it comes to listening to somebody else's story. And I am so guilty of this, and I don't ever mean to be, and this is not intentional, but I'll catch people, I'll, they'll be talking to me in my office or back when I had a student with a classroom. I won't always listen to them. But that's the best way to reach them, is to simply listen to them. And what happens too often is, is they'll start talking and all of a sudden I'll be like, well, yeah, well, one time I did this. <laughs> or yeah, well, my story, this happened to me. 
And all of a sudden, before I realize it, I've hijacked their story, and I've made it about me. And I'm not trying to, but, but I have. And I have to remember what James tells us to slow down. James chapter 1, he says, let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger. For the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Now, when you get into a, a conversation with somebody, there's that danger. But you have to resist the temptation to interrupt them. You have to resist the temptation to control the conversation. And like James says, you have to resist the temptation to get upset with what they say. I, th- I look at it this way. When I'm talking to somebody who doesn't know much about Jesus, I put my feelings aside. And I tell myself, I'm not going to get upset or offended by anything they say. They may trash what I believe, but I'm letting them vent. I'm letting them get something off their chest that maybe is keeping them from coming to Jesus. And so I just say, hey, whatever they say, I'm not going to get offended by it. I'm not going to get into an argument or a debate by it. If you remember back to the, the series that we just did uh, last month talking about hard questions, I said nobody's ever come to Jesus because they lost an argument. Nobody's ever been debated into belief. It's like, oh man, you're right. I guess I should go get baptized now. Doesn't really happen that way. So when you're listening to others, you have to remember, let them control it. Let them say what needs to be said. And there's some other temptations that we need to avoid and some some things we need to remember and, and be reminded of. First off, don't assume you know everything. And if you don't know something, just say, I don't know. That's a good question. I don't know the answer to that. I'd like to find out the answer to that if you'd let me. And maybe I can get back with you next week with an answer. I do this all the time. I'll, I'll get a situation, whether it's, it's a pastoral situation or a question, and I'm like, man, I don't really know the answer to that. So I'll email somebody, email one of my, my former professors, email one of the, the former pastors I have in my life, one of my mentors. What should I say? What would you say? How would you handle this situation? And I get a lot of insight, and I use that to kind of go forward with it. And yeah, I realize what what Peter writes in 1 Peter 3 when he says we should always be prepared to give an answer for the hope that's in us. But if I don't have one at that moment, I just need to back off and say, I don't know right now. I will find out though. But it's this temptation, I think, for us to, especially when it's somebody who's not a believer, somebody unchurched, to kind of almost become arrogant in our faith, like, yeah, well, look what God's done for me and look how together I have it when we really don't. And it's okay to back off a little bit. Remember, when you live your story, you have to be transparent and you have to be authentic. But mostly, if you're going to listen to the story of others, if you really want to get to know who they are and where they come from, you have to invest in them and you have to be among them. I think this is kind of fascinating. When you look in the Old Testament, And you read in Deuteronomy, when the Israelites are lost, wandering in the desert, God gives them instructions to build the tabernacle, this tent that they carry around with them all over the place, and they would carry this until they settled in Jerusalem and built the temple. But the tabernacle was was very elaborately built, and the purpose of it was this was a place for God to come and dwell with his people. In fact, if you look up the original word, the Hebrew word for tabernacle is the word mishkan. And you literally translate that It translates to dwelling place. That's what the word tabernacle means. This was a place for God to come dwell with his people. 
What I love about this is if you jump forward into the New Testament, you look in John chapter 1, it says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and you skip down to verse 14, it says, the Word became flesh and made His dwelling among us. God's saying, you don't have to build a tabernacle anymore, I've just done it for you. Here's Jesus. And then later, Jesus hands us off to the Holy Spirit, and now God dwells in us. So we've gone from we have to build something for God to come dwell in, to God has sent Jesus to dwell among us, to now he dwells in us. But you see, he did that to reach us. He did all of that, and he came and dwelt among us to reach us. And he did that while we were so far away from him, while we were running away from him. So here's the question. Since God did that and came to us, are we willing to do that and go towards those others who are running from God? Are we willing to go tabernacle among them? To go pitch our tents, as Paul would say, among them? To get to know them, to relate to them, to learn how to reach them? Uh, Maybe you're like me and there's certain people you struggle to relate with. For me, it's small children. Yes, I realize I have two small children. I struggle to relate with small children. There's a reason I taught high school and not first grade. And when I told you all a few weeks back that, hey, if we ever need help in the nursery, I'm probably not the one to do it. It won't end well for anybody involved. I meant that. It's not because I'm unwilling, it's just because it's probably better if I don't. (laughs) Okay? But an example of this, last year, the the church I was at, we had a sports league, and and there was uh, a need for coaches, and I said, hey, I've coached soccer, I'll I'll coach. He said, cool, uh, any particular area you want to coach? And I said, you know what? Use me wherever you need me. (laughs) Famous last words, right? (laughs) You guys know where this is headed. (laughs) He's like, cool, we need somebody to coach six and seven-year-old boys. (laughs) Okay, anywhere else you need me, I'm willing. (laughs) So I go from coaching high school girls to first and second grade boys. Let's just say it was rough. I had no clue what I was doing. And, and I mean, I'm on staff, and I'm supposed to represent this church well, and I'm like, can I yell at them? I don't know what, can I yell at them? I don't know what I'm doing here. And it took a while, because I didn't know how to talk to six and seven-year-olds. I mean, I didn't want to say something that was like underneath them and make them feel dumb. I didn't want to do that. But I didn't want to talk over their heads and, and them not have a clue what I'm talking. I mean, I just didn't know how to approach them. I didn't know what kind of, kind of skills that they had yet and, and, and how able they were or how they were able to do certain things. And fortunately, one of the other dads jumped in and helped me out. But as the season progressed, we started figuring each other out more. I started figuring out how to relate to them a little bit better. And so two months later when the season's over, I'm like, man, I, I hate to see it end now. I wish we could just keep going because I'm starting to finally click with these boys. And I'm like, man, I wish I could just keep coaching these kids growing up because we'll just keep getting to know each other more and more and more. And that's exactly how life works. If I don't ever spend time with somebody that's not like me, I'm never going to figure out how to relate to that person. Maybe that's a generational gap. Uh, maybe it's, it's somebody a whole lot younger than me or older than me, and, and I know how to relate to me, but I don't know how to relate to them. Maybe it's somebody who's in a, in a different place in life than I am. Uh, for somebody who's been a Christian, basically been in church his whole life, maybe it's struggling to, to relate to somebody who has never believed in God. How can I learn how to relate to that person unless I'm spending time with them? Maybe dare we say it's a political gap? 
We don't know how to relate to somebody on the other side. Whatever the gap is, the only way to bridge it is to spend time with that person. Paul understood that so well. Paul understood that what he had to do was was shed this thought, this mentality that there's a one-size-fits-all approach to spreading the gospel. And instead, you have to contextualize your approach. Now, what that word means basically is two things. You have to pay attention to how you order your approach and what you put your emphasis on. Order and emphasis. That's how you contextualize your approach to whoever it is you're, you're trying to reach. And to understand that, look what Paul did. Just read Read Acts. Read the last half of the book of Acts. You'll notice when he's trying to reach Jews, he leads off with Scripture because they knew Scripture. He goes to the Old Testament and he uses that to point them towards Jesus. But when he's talking to a Gentile, they didn't know the Scripture. They didn't have a clue what it was. They didn't care about it, so he didn't really go there. He started with something that they knew. One of the best examples is Acts 17. He's, he's in Athens and he's up on, on Mars Hill and he's talking What's he do? He quotes their ancient philosophers, people that they know, things they understand, and he uses that to point to Jesus. He reaches to them, and he he tells them how Jesus should make them feel. And ultimately, he does the same thing. He leads them to the resurrection of Jesus. And if you look at his approaches, he doesn't skip anything, but he changes the order based on who it is he's talking to. He explains that in 1 Corinthians 9 when he says this, when I was with the Jews, I lived like a Jew to bring the Jews to Christ. When I was with those who follow the Jewish law, I too lived under that law. Even though I'm not subject to the law, I did this so I could bring Christ to those who are under the law. When I'm with the Gentiles who do not follow the Jewish law, I too live apart from the law so I can bring them to Christ. But I do not ignore the law of God, I obey the law of Christ. When I'm with those who are weak, I share their weaknesses For I want to bring the weak to Christ. Yes, I try to find common ground with everyone, doing everything I can to save some. I do this to spread the good news and share in its blessings. You may see this in another translation where he says, I become all things to all men so that by by all means I might save some. Notice he doesn't say all. He says, I want to save as many as I can. It's probably not going to be all, but I want to save as many as I can. In other words, Paul's saying this, to effectively reach others for Christ, you have to be willing to go pitch your tent among them. That's how you're going to learn how to relate to them. And that's the only way that we're going to learn to relate to them. But whether it's living your story or listening and learning the stories of others, more important than either of those is that you ultimately circle back to God's story. And that's what you share with others. And that's where it gets a little bit challenging. That's where I think it can get a little bit daunting at times. When we go to share God's story, sometimes we wonder, where do I start? I think a great example is just to jump into the book of Romans and use it as a guide. Because Romans is all about what Jesus has done for us. And I love it because Paul spends the first several chapters just talking about how bad we are. (laughs) And then all of a sudden turns the page and starts talking about what Jesus did to take care of that. I love it. But if you really want to show people Jesus and you want to show them what he's already done for them, whether they realize it or not, Romans is a great place to start. I mean, just look at Romans 3 and and point out to them that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. In other words, say, you know what? I sin daily. You sin daily. But Jesus has already taken care of it. 
I heard it, or saw a tweet last night that blew me away. It said, if on your wedding day, you stood there and you knew that your spouse was going to cheat on you every single day, would you still go through with the wedding? Because that's what Jesus did for you. He knew going to the cross, you were still going to fail him every single day, and he did it anyway. And that's what Paul's saying here in Romans 3. Show them Romans 6. Show them the comparison Paul makes in verse 23 when he says, for the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. In other words, tell them sin has consequences unless you make Jesus the Lord of your life. Jesus has replaced that punishment with eternity with him. Show them Romans 5. Show them how strong God's love is in Romans 5, 8 when Paul says, but God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, while, you can underline that, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Why do I emphasize that word? Because if you look at my generation, we're basically raised with this mentality of you don't trust somebody until they've earned it. It's the opposite of what it used to be because we've been raised in an incredibly skeptical world. And we've been taught a hundred different things from a hundred different angles. So you have to earn our trust and our respect. All the good thoughts and feelings that we're supposed to give to each, others, or each other, the younger generation doesn't hand those out freely. And that's why this is such an important passage, because when you're talking to somebody, especially younger, you say, you know what? God doesn't make you earn it. God doesn't say, hey, if you do all this, I'll love you. He says, no matter what you think, I love you. Because I came and loved you while you were at your worst, I still sent Jesus to die, knowing you were going to cheat on him every single day. Show them Romans 10, where Paul tells us to make ourselves a living sacrifice to Jesus, and then explain to them uh, how he tells us that. Or, I'm sorry, chapter, I'm ahead of myself. Romans 10, where he tells them the simple path of salvation, where he says, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, And if you believe that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved, period. In other words, he's saying making Jesus the Lord of your life, it's simple, but it's still a lot of work because you're going to have to trust him fully. You're going to have to follow him fully. And no, you don't have to have it all figured out right off the bat. You don't have to have it all together from the get-go, but you have to trust in him. And then show them Romans 12. Where, God, or where Paul tells us to make ourselves a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God. And he says in verse 2, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. In other words, we tend to worship ourselves these days. We've made mankind our God. And, and that's kind of the, the mode we're living in across our world today. But what Paul's saying here is, don't let the world change your view of Scripture but let scripture change your view of the world. Mostly, when you're trying to show everybody Christ, pointing back to John 3, 16, most simple, most well-known verse in the Bible, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever shall believe in him shall not perish but have eternal life. See, it's this simple, and you can tell them this. Christianity is not a religion of do. It's a story of what Jesus has done for us. Christianity, it's not a religion of do. It's a story of what Jesus has done for us. Heaven's a free gift. 
if we believe in Jesus. It's already done. And that's the best thing about this. Uh, going back several weeks ago, we used the, the, the illustration of the ladder. We don't have to climb up to God. He climbed down to us. He came and made his dwelling with us. So here at Redwood, we've, we've said this several times. Our mission is to help people say yes to God. And for a lot of us, if you've been in the church for a while, that means we want to help you say yes to your next step. So maybe it's saying yes to joining a small group or maybe hosting and teaching a small group. Maybe it's yes to serving uh, with our kids or, or serving with our, our first impressions team or, or, or whatever. Maybe it's yes to going on a mission trip. Our, our goal is to help you say yes to whatever that next step is, but we can never forget that we as a church are tasked with making disciples, which means we have to help people say their very first yes. Yes, Lord, I believe in you. And then their very next yes is, yes, Lord, I will follow you. That's where it all starts. We have to go all the way back there, and those are the people we're trying to reach. Yes, we want to take people to a deeper level with Christ, but we cannot do that if we don't get them in the pool to begin with. You want to make an impact in, in the people in your life, the unchurched people in your life. You want to make an impact in this valley. We have to learn to overcome our fear, overcome our awkwardness, and share Jesus with others. Be real. Be authentic. Be consistent and transparent. Just be who you are. Be relevant. Get to know how to reach people. Get to know when to reach people. But mostly, when it all boils down to it, we have to be ready when those opportunities come our way. You may get just one chance with someone. Are you going to be ready to take advantage of it when it comes? Overcome the fear, overcome the anxiety, and overcome your awkwardness. Let's pray. Father, we are, are so thankful, Lord, for the... God, just the awesome responsibility that you have given us to reach others for Christ. God, for the, uh, just for the awesome mission you've given us to make disciples, to be the church, to be the continuation of what it is you started. So God, I pray right now that you would give us this courage and this strength. You would embolden us, Lord, to do what we're called to do to do what we're supposed to do. God, I pray that you would uh, teach us and, and, and guide us. Lord, that when opportunities arise, we would see them. Lord, we would know what to do. God, that we would understand that we are equipped, that we are, are able to do this, and, and that we'll find an answer if we need to. But God, mostly I would ask that you would just be with this group, that if somebody in our lives is making that next step, God, we would take it with them. We would walk with them. And Lord, if there's somebody here who's on the verge of one of those very first steps, God, you would continue to soften their hearts and their minds and, and speak to them. God, and you would, would guide us to be right there with them, helping them make that step. So God, I'm thankful for this group today. I'm thankful for their passion and their willingness to serve you and, and to follow you and to be here to worship you. God, I would ask a special blessing upon this body. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.